an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, oh God, you are so good. You are so powerful. You are holy, holy, holy. We ask your blessing on this time, Lord, as we talk about things that are so close to how we live. Please help us to know how to please you and how to lead our families in pleasing you in new ways as life-giving, love-surrendering sacrifices. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to begin with Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is our theme verse. And for me, this has been a life passage. And so it's really an amazing thing to be able to have this be our uh, theme for the weekend. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you may present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. First of all, St. Paul begins by appealing to the mercy of God. As we listen to these various messages, one of the things we can walk away from is, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. And the message of St. Paul and the other authors of sacred scripture are you don't have to in your own strength. What you have to do is rely on the Lord's strength, on his grace, on his power. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He is the faithful one, and it's in him that we find the ability to be faithful. He's the one who has grace that doesn't have a boundary, and every morning those mercies are new and fresh. So today is the moment that time touches eternity, and we say, yes, Lord, today I want to follow you a little better, a little closer, more fully. We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is not just a religion of the head or the, or the soul. It involves all of us. We're called to imitate our Lord in total self-giving love. One of the most poignant pictures for me has been pregnancy. You know, I, I always started out very voluntary. You know, Lord, I'm, I would love to have another baby. And then the involuntary sacrifices began. You know, the nausea that even in the middle of the night just going to the bathroom, I could be nauseous by the time I got back to bed, or the stretch marks, or the C-sections, or all the different things, and I won't enumerate it all right now. I know half of you are going, oh, thank God. <laughs> but for the profound privilege of that interior communion with my unborn child, and the possibility of bringing that child into this world and baptizing this child and teaching this little one everything about the Lord, what a profound privilege it is. 
when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He quoted Deuteronomy uh, 6, 4 to 6, where he said that we were to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. Far too often, we give God a token hour on Sunday, and it may be all that we even expect of our children. But I'm here to tell you that he is asking for your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. He wants all of your mind, all of your heart, all of your strength. He wants your body as well. We are to give everything. And this is the physical side of being spiritual. This is an act of worship. As we say, Lord, I don't even know how to do that. But if you're calling me to it and you'll give me your grace to do it, I'll say yes. You know the trouble with being a living sacrifice as opposed to a dead one? <laughs> it's when it pinches, we start crawling off the altar. You know, I could just imagine this weekend that you might say, Lord, I want to be that living sacrifice. And you place yourself on the altar at Mass. Lord, I'm here. I want to serve you. I want to love you. And then you go home. And it begins to pinch in other ways. And we start crawling off the altar. Well, not quite that much, Lord. You know? And he's like, come on, sweetheart. You want to crawl back up there. This is where you need to be because it's where I'm asking you to be. Galatians 2.20 reminds us, I have been, past tense, perfect, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What has Jesus withheld from you? Nothing. And he asks the same in return. We are to give all of ourselves to him. Now that's verse 1. Now we look at verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world. We don't even know the ways in which we are conformed to this world. We don't even realize the ways in which we are influenced about how we think of ourselves as men or women. The distortions about what the act of marriage is and what it means outside of the bonds of marriage and what marriage is and how it's defined. How can we even change the way we think if we're immersed in our own culture? That comes from the transformation of our minds. It's a recognition that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we have become temples of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us, according to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We're to train our minds, as Jeff said last night, to think with the mind of Christ, to study the word of God and the teaching of the church. And part of why you came to this conference is that you want him to transform your thoughts so that you think the way he does. And that way you will prove the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I got in the car with my son, who now is 11, but he was 10 at the time. We were going down to St. Peter's so we could go to Mass, and he was going to serve at the altar. And he said, Mom, I have a question for you. Okay, he said, how did you know Daddy was the one? 
I'm thinking, oh my, he's 10 years old. How can he even be asking this? And I've sort of fumbled around for some <laughs> explanation. And we got to Mass, and he dashed out of the car. Right after Mass, he gets back in the car, and he said, I would like to resume our former conversation. <laughs> How did you know Daddy was the one? There are so many questions about the will of God in terms of the future that we don't know. But we know two things for sure. Number one, God knows the future. And number two, we don't. But we know the one who knows the future. That Proverbs 31 woman in verse 25, it says she laughs at the time to come. Now, I guess there are silly people in the world that might laugh as if the future doesn't matter, but I don't believe that is true of that particular woman. She knows that God loves her and has a plan for her life. And I am sure that every one of us would actually say that as our life unfolds and the grace comes at the time that we need it, we would say, thank God I didn't know everything about the future earlier. We can trust our Heavenly Father to reveal that plan and to give us the grace at that time. If you look, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 1. I want to read just a smattering of verses to help us put the future in context. Verses 3, 4, and 11 of chapter 1. Oh, I'd love to hear the rustling of those pages. <laughs> okay. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In him, according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, we who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live to the praise of his glory. Now, if I didn't have a clock going, I would love more time to unpack that, but I'm gonna to have to be very brief. Just a few key points. First of all, it doesn't matter whether or not your mother and father planned to conceive you, because Almighty God from before the foundation of the world chose you in Christ. There is no such thing as an accident. God chose you in Christ. And what did he choose you in Christ for? For holiness, to be like him. How can we do that? Because he's lavished his grace on us in Christ. And then as it unfolds, he reveals that he has a plan, a marvelous plan for our lives that he's going to reveal step by step, day by day. One time I was gardening outside with my then five-year-old Jeremiah, who's now 19. And we, oh, we always garden. I'm always, I've already had my little granddaughter outside and we were pulling weeds before she was two. Okay, so we're, we're, uh, we're, we're pulling weeds and I can see he has a look of consternation on his face, which doesn't really fit a five-year-old. And I said, honey, what's wrong? And he said, mommy, I pray and I pray and I pray. And God doesn't tell me my mission. <laughs> and see, at that time, at the end of Mass, I used to huddle up with my little boys and I would just pray that God would reveal his mission for their lives. But I didn't mean at that moment, you know. 
and I could see his spirit was discouraged. I said, oh, sweetheart, well, um, okay, uh, maybe someday you're supposed to marry a little girl named Mary Beth. She might not even be born yet. And, and so at the right time, um, you know, God will have you meet her, and then eventually you'll get married. And he said, I don't want to get married. I said, oh, okay, honey, that's fine. I said, you know, you talk so much. At that point, he just had India on his heart. I don't know if it's because he was born on the Feast of St. Thomas the Apostle, and of course, that's where St. Thomas went, but we had had many discussions where he would tell people, you know, are you gonna go teach Bible studies in India? Are you gonna go to India and share the gospel? I don't know why, but it was on his heart. So I said, you know, honey, maybe God's calling you to be a priest and you're gonna go to, to India as a missionary. And he said, I don't wanna be a priest. And I'm thinking, oh, I have no idea where this is going. I said, well, honey, what do you want to be? He said, I just want to be a little boy. I said, sweetheart, that is your mission. Be a little boy for Jesus. And when the mission changes, God will tell you. At age five and now at age 19, Jeremiah is to know and to love the Lord and to serve him in this life and enjoy him forever. And how he does that in terms of a vocational choice or with whom in terms of a particular order or diocese or woman, that's yet to be revealed. But life is not on hold. And for those of you who feel like I'm just treading water here, I'm not in my vocation yet, don't allow life to be on hold. Today is a day you do the will of God. Going from what is clear to what is unclear. Someone was asked Mark Twain, did it bother him how much scripture uh, he, was he bothered by the scripture he didn't understand? And as far as I know, this is an accurate quote. He said, no, what bothers me is the scripture I do understand. <laughs> I mean, if you just left here this weekend and tried to obey the Lord on everything that is clear, we'd all have plenty to do. Okay, and we can trust that he will reveal our mission as it changes. Okay, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because this will be the focus of the rest of our time together today. Beginning in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from unchastity, that each of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like heathen who do not know God. We are to be holy. You can know the will of God today because he is calling you to be holy. Number two, you are to shun immorality. And number three, embrace self-control as a fruit of the spirit with holiness and honor. 30, probably three years ago, Scott was doing inner city ministry in the ghetto of Pittsburgh. As he was trying to teach 13 and 14 year olds about uh, chastity, that sex outside of marriage was wrong, one of the kids shot up his hand and he said, no, 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 you mean making babies outside of marriage is wrong. Scott said, no, <laughs> I actually mean sex outside of marriage. And he said, this is a 14 year old kid. He goes, it's fun. It's like playing basketball. And all the kids were like, yeah, yeah. And Scott realized he had a lot of work to do. Well, my mother-in-law told me a week ago that one of her friends in her 70s made this comment. 
Her daughters cohabited for four years, and she said, I just think it's important that they make a commitment to marriage when they decide to have babies. Wow, we've gone from the ghetto to the suburb, and no one has a sense of why we do or don't do what we're doing. What is chastity? It's an apprenticeship in self-mastery. According to the Catechism in 2345, it is a moral virtue, it's a grace, and it's a fruit of the Spirit. Chastity is the successful integration of a person's sexuality in their state in life. So who has to be chaste? Everybody. I have to be chaste in the sense that the only person that I have sexual relations with is my spouse. Anybody who is not married is not to have sexual relations with anyone. We all have to be chaste, whether we're single or married. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. It says, shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And actually, I like the King James Version a little better, which says, flee fornication. What does that mean, to flee? It's to run as if your life depended on it. If you can remember seeing the sound of music, where they have to flee the country so that the Nazis don't take them, that's a good picture of fleeing. They're not just dancing over the mountaintop, singing. They are running for their lives. If someone ran through the building and said, it's on fire, flee, you would not turn around and say, well, could I just stand at the doorstep and, and you know, maybe just go inside a little bit? But that's the way we treat sexual immorality. Can I just linger here a little bit? I don't think I'll get burned. I don't think I'll inhale the smoke. Do you understand? Ephesians 5.3 says, fornication and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is fitting among saints. Do you realize, I mean, we, we tend to say, well, an adulterer, that's just terrible. That's just terrible. Adultery is just, it breaks apart marriages, it breaks apart families, and it is terrible. But do you understand that fornicators, people who have sex outside the bonds of marriage, are listed right along with the idolaters and the homosexuals who are practicing and the uh, adulterers as those who will not enter the precincts of heaven apart from repentance? We treat it as so minor. Well, they're living together. I just hope they get married. God has designed our bodies so that arousal should lead to the marital embrace like a fire. And at first, I want to tell you, I think that's good news. That means it, it can't be extinguished. Fire belongs in the fireplace. And what, if you think about a fire in a fireplace, what are the images that come to your mind? Warmth, light, a cozy place for romance, a special place to snuggle up with a child. But out of the fireplace, it causes, causes destruction, damage, and death. We want the home fires to burn, but only in the fireplace. We want the fire in the hearth to blaze. And I actually talk a bit about that in Beloved and Blessed. We should have the most vital, beautiful sexual relationships within marriage. 
as a testimony to the world, as a testimony to the world. Passionate love was not meant to travel from place to place, but to rest at home. Self-control allows us to control our bodies and our passions instead of being controlled by them. And there should be no hint of impurity. It's worth the wait. God's laws are an expression of his love for us. He doesn't say, I made sex and you can't have any. He's saying, I made such a beautiful and powerful gift that I'm going to draw the boundaries so that you can enjoy the light and the love that comes from that. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely hind, a graceful doe. Let her affection fill you at all times with delight. Be infatuated always with her love. This is a gift for us to understand how to receive each other and give ourselves in the beauty of the marital embrace. But there are boundaries. For those of you not yet married but might be, do you realize that your abstaining from unchastity is a way of honoring your future spouse, maybe someone you haven't even met yet? We're to have purity. I'm going to give you a few different examples. First, purity of heart. Purity of heart. This is part of what Cardinal Regali was talking about last night. That purity of heart for Jesus. And then out of our love for Jesus, our true and sincere love for each other. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So shun youthful passions and even righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. St. Jose Maria Escrava said this, By divine vocation, some are called to live this purity in marriage. Others... Forgoing all human love are called to correspond solely and passionately to God's love. Far from being slaves to sensuality, both the married and the unmarried are to be masters of their own body and heart in order to give themselves unstintingly to others. We're to have purity of mind. Impure actions begin as thoughts. Every imagination we have is to be pure before the Lord. Now, our imaginations aren't pure. We have all kinds of temptations that come to us in our minds. But the temptation is not sin. It's the lingering there. It's the lingering there. So when that thought comes, we're to replace it with a God-honoring thought, saying, Lord, I want to please you. I will not continue to think about that. I will not dwell on that that is evil or wrong. We're to take every thought captive to Christ, as Jeff said last night, 2 Corinthians 10:5. Jesus warned us very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not simply an adulterous action that is lust, but that sin begins in the mind. You know, it used to be that when the internet first came out, about 90% of the pornography viewed was viewed by men. But women are catching up. 40% of the pornography viewed today is viewed by women. Men and women both are bringing destructive forces into their thought life, and I would say it will act out in their actions. Images from films, magazines, or the internet 
are permanently embedded in our minds. And it's a distortion of men and women and what the act of marriage means. The only man or woman that you should ever desire to or see naked should be your own spouse, no others. If we value who we are, we won't allow people to misuse us in impurity. Do we respect the dignity of the other person instead of treating them as an object? Pornography is simply an objectification of men and women. Psalm 119.9 and 11 gives us one of these important passages, especially in helping train our children. It says, how shall a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to thy word. I have laid up thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We need to soak in sacred scripture. We need to memorize sacred scripture. And we need to train our children to memorize scripture so that when the temptations come, and they will come, God's word will come to their hearts and our hearts and will speak the truth to our own heart, having been transformed by the renewal of our mind. It is always easier to avoid a temptation than to resist it. That's one of the keys. When the temptation comes, we have to know how to resist it. If I stand up here and I tell you, don't think about orange basketballs. Don't think about orange basketballs about this size and they have all these little nubs all over and it's real easy to palm if you have a big enough hand. Don't, please, don't think about orange basketballs. If I just tell you over and over not to, what are you all going to think of? Most likely, orange basketballs, okay? The point is not saying, I don't want to lust, I don't want to lust, you know. We don't want to fill our mind with what we're supposed to be fighting. We need to, as St. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you're finding your mind wandering toward a man or a woman to whom you are not married, fill your mind with gratitude for the person to whom you are married. Dwell on what is true and good and lovely. We need purity of intention, and this involves self-mastery of our feelings and imaginations. Uh, we need discretion in conversation. St. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. We want to live chastity through our affection with our spouse. In other words, we don't withhold our spouse in an effort to manipulate, to extend an argument, to punish the other. 1 Corinthians 7.5 says, don't refuse one another except by agreement for a season that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Why? What difference does it make? then come together again, lest Satan tempt you through a lack of self-control. The evil one works all the angles. We need to think God's thoughts after him so we know how to please him. Our culture is driven by the desire for the ever better sexual experience, to get it. It's not about a person in our culture, people who are so experienced in the actions of sexuality have no clue what it's about. 
in terms of this beautiful, life-affirming, life-giving act of interpersonal communion. It really brings me to tears sometimes talk, listening to these people talk because I think, who didn't tell you? Who didn't hold you and tell you the beauty that, that it, the beautiful thing that it was when you were conceived and brought into this world and set before you the picture of what you want in taking a husband or wife in holiness? I was speaking out in California and a woman came up to me and she said, well, I heard what you said about pornography, but I have to tell you, I, my husband has begun ordering some films and he's, we're just trying to learn techniques. I said, pornography is not an educational venture. I said, you are really going into a quasi-adultery. You're being aroused by men and women to whom you're not married and you are using each other. I said, this, this goes against the dignity of marriage. I hope you'll go, down, go home, burn everything you have, don't throw it away, a teen will go through your garbage and find it. Burn it and commit to tell him you will never see another film like that and ask God to purify your love for each other. Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be honored among all and the marriage bed kept undefiled for God will judge the immoral and the adulteress. Don't give Satan a foothold and don't be naive. Don't be naive. Purity of affection outside of marriage. You know, God has made men and women different and it's, and it's beautiful in the dynamic of those differences. Women are more sensitive to touch. Men are more sensitive to sight. So when you approach someone to whom you are not married, keep that in mind. That means, women, we need to be sensitive to how we dress so that we are not causing a brother in Christ to sin. And men, you may not realize it, but even the smallest gestures of patting a woman on the back or how you hug her or greet her with a kiss can communicate a sense of affection that's inappropriate. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1, excuse me, 3, 1 and 5 says there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Now that does not mean you can't ever touch someone you're not married to or we have to wear, you know, the full garb with the veil over our faces. Friendly affection is different than sensual affection, but we want to guard each other's purity. We want to guard each other's purity. So we need to live chastity in a, in a very special way. I told one of my children who had a, a very close girl friend when he got engaged. And it, wasn't, it was not his fiance, it was just a good friend. I said, you really have two options here. Either you draw her in to the friendship you have with your beloved so that it's you as a couple having that friendship that's very close, or you step back because this is not the time to have lots of other dear friends of the opposite sex. On campus here, St. Francis is a hero, and so there's a lot of conversation about St. Francis and St. Clair. And I talked to a counselor on campus who said, if I have one more person, and he meant a married person, come in here and tell me that he just has a St. Clair, St. Francis relationship with a woman he's not married to, he said, I'm gonna throw up. <laughs> he said, St. Clair and St. Francis guarded their relationship. They honored Christ. Do not use them as an excuse. 
We're not to find a spiritual soulmate to whom we're not married. Now, if we're not married to a soulmate, we need to pray for his or her conversion because God's desire would be that you would have the faith in common and, that, and share a passionate love for Christ for each other. But do not, do not develop an intimate spiritual bond with someone to whom you're not married. We're to have purity of dress. There's a big difference, ladies, between dressing attractively and dressing to attract. Okay? We're to we are to veil what should be hidden. And that means keeping our clothes on. Pretty simple, pretty simple concept, I'd say. <laughs> and for not being married, yeah, that's a good guideline. I remember my father at different points as I was uh, coming into teen years just saying to me, sweetheart, your hemline has to drop a little. Or we're going to go with a one-piece swimsuit. And I would say, well, I just don't understand. And he said, you know what? You don't have to. God made you different than the young men you're going to hang out with. But I'm telling you, obey me, and you will honor the Lord. Fathers, are you telling your daughters this? Are you telling her how beautiful she is? Are you filling her cup so she's not looking for that to be filled somewhere else? Are you helping her understand that the boys she's hanging around aren't evil and horrible and they see things differently? I mean, sorry, but just that they see things differently. Okay, they do see things differently. Please tell them that. Okay. There is power in purity. There is power in purity. Through chastity, according to the catechism, we witness to God's fidelity and loving kindness. So as adults, for those of us who are parents, are we pursuing purity? Do our children see it being modeled? Do we watch movies and television that are appropriate? What happens if our spouse goes to bed at night? Do we linger on the internet seeing images that we would be horrified to have our children see that we are seeing? We have to maintain the purity of heart. Okay. I visited a friend who had had her first baby and I was not prepared for her reaction. He was three weeks old, this beautiful little boy, Michael, and as we sat there just gazing into his perfect little face, she began to weep. And she said, I can't believe I only have 13 years. And I said, 13 years? She goes, till he's a teen. <laughs> she meant it. She was almost in crisis, sitting there holding this three-week-old baby. Maybe some of that was postpartum, I don't know. I did not know how to console her because, yes, in fact, 13 years from that time, she would be having a teenager. She had been a wild teenager, and she was already assuming that her child would follow her path. My mother planted a very different seed in my heart. All the time that we had our babies, she would say, oh, wait till the teen years. They're the best. They're the best. It's where they're internalizing their faith, where they have amazing ideas about life and politics and economics and, and history, and they want to talk 
Oh, they want to talk. They want to share their thoughts and opinions. I don't know who came up with the idea that, that boys are kind of silent on the side, and it could be just the Han family, but our boys are quite talkative. And if you give them time, they will tell you the amazing things on their hearts, in their minds. We don't need to fear the teen years, but we can't be naive and think that just by osmosis, they'll understand how to be holy in their thought life and in their bodies. The sexualized messages that are being launched at our teenagers is staggering. According to the National Coalition for the Protection of Family and Children, something I would really encourage you to look up on the internet because they're just such amazing resources they have. The average teenager is exposed to about 14,000 sexualized messages a year. And no more than 2% have something to do with abstinence, self-discipline, or a concern about sexually transmitted diseases. Now this is just through ads on television as well as the internet. Through the wireless technology and mobile entertainment and the internet, more than a billion pages of pornography is available at their fingertips. I know from talking to some of the men here on campus, they are inundated. Now we've had special protection put on the computer stuff here, software here in, in, uh, at our university. And I won't say where, but there was another university when a president tried to initiate that, a priest working there said he didn't want filters put on. And when asked why, because it was a protection for the children, he said, I want them to fall, and then when they fall, they'll want to convert. No, no. We don't want these images filling their hearts and minds just for the possibility that they'll hit rock bottom and want to convert. Call to conversion. <laughs> you don't have to see pornography to call a child, a teen, to conversion. Pornography is seductive, it's destructive, and it is highly physically addictive because the brain releases epinephrine and makes such a strong imprint that years later they will have difficulty getting those images out. There are significant similarities between the impact of sexual molestation through early exposure to pornography and the seduction and molestation of children. And the average first-time exposure for children, according to the National Coalition, is now between eight and eight and a half years old of seeing some form of pornography. We have to care about the emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being of our children. So what can we do? Well, we need to emphasize the beauty of chastity, the beauty of it, that the act of marriage in marriage strengthens that bond in a powerful way and brings new life where it can be embraced. There's no bad memories to deal with. There's no sexually transmitted diseases. Secondly, we want to encourage them in real friendship. Because the catechism says that the virtue of friendship strengthens the virtue of chastity. It's a positive peer pressure where they call each other on to holiness and hold each other accountable. Third, we talk to them about the difference between lust and love. 
Okay? Loving each other before marriage means I don't arouse the other person so that the only satisfying culmination would be the act of marriage. I mean, it's better that you don't go ahead and fornicate, but if you leave each other in a place where there's that longing physically, it's defrauding each other. It's, it's confessible sin. Next, you speak to your sons. And you, I love the fact that you don't have to go into detail, okay? And you just say, your sperm will eventually, if you get married, only belong in your wife where it can be fertile. Guess what? You don't have to go into a single list of aberrant sexuality. You have now covered everything, okay? If they have more questions, they ask their dad. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that simple? Can it be that simple? Yes, it can be that simple. Then you teach them to avoid the near occasion of sin. Okay? They need to avoid the near occasion of sin. The hours before midnight and after midnight have a different impact. You set time limits. Where do you go with your beloved? That's important. How do you kiss your beloved even? Uh, neshak, which is the Hebrew word for kiss, means to kindle. And Doug Wilson, in a book called Her Hand in Marriage, said, don't heat the oven when you can't cook the roast. Okay? I like that. I like that. Being alone in a secluded place, according to Reverend John O'Brien, is to court disaster, not love. So refrain from sexual expression that leads to the point where the act of marriage is the only satisfying culmination. We can't start something, we can't finish. And the Song of Solomon over and over says, don't stir up love till it please, till it can be satisfied. They also need to be aware that alcohol lowers your inhibitions. So you've got to use great wisdom if alcohol's involved. We need to be very clear about cohabitation. I mentioned this a couple of days ago in the talk of the Applied Biblical Studies. We live in a culture that assumes it, that almost wonders about the wisdom of a couple getting married apart from cohabiting. But cohabiting is just another word for fornication because I really don't think they just live in separate bedrooms in an apartment. And what habits are they already learning? I have never yet heard. I could, I could find it, but I've never yet heard of a cohabiting couple using natural family planning. And yet there are priests who have told their parishioners, let's just get them married. Let's just get them married, and then we'll explain the church's teaching. Brothers and sisters, that is not love. That is not love. We have to be honest with them. Fornication places them in a state of mortal sin, serious sin. And the goal is not just to get them to come to Mass so that they take the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin because the church teaches that is additional mortal sin. Is God's word true or not? Is the church true, telling the truth or not? When that child could look at you and say, I'm living with him because I love him. Can you pray for the guts, the courage to say, you can't love him if you are taking him to hell? 
God is not the consummate spoil sport. He's not the one who's saying, these, are, these things are so good, but you can't have them. He's saying, I want you to have life and have it abundantly. I want you to have the act of marriage in the bonds of committed, faithful, fruitful love so that you can be an actual witness just in the fact of your marriage to the culture about my love for you, my care for you. We have that opportunity to express life-giving, interpersonal communion of love, imaging the Godhead who called us in his image into being to reflect him. Victory is born, not of just having a clever strategy, but for us and for our children, developing the moral compass that helps us understand what are the boundaries and why are they there. There have been growing groups of young Catholic men on various campuses founding purity groups. And I, I love this. I think this is so beautiful. They have banded together to, quote, oppose a culture that accepts pornography, contraception, and binge drinking, end quote. They meet together. They pray for each other. And one of their commitments is, if any one of them falls, they will all forego dinner the next day. It helps keep them on track because they don't want to have all of their friends have to do that. And the fasting is a step forward in self-control, which is one of the goals. God loves us. God has a wonderful plan for us, and that includes sexual purity. We are to be conformed, not to this world, but to Christ. We're to have the mind of Christ. We are to imitate him in giving ourselves completely to him as living sacrifices. And as we're transformed by the renewal of our mind, we will prove what is the will of God in our lives, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's really pray for each other, especially as we continue through this weekend with the opportunity for confession, the opportunity for Mass, that we will drink in, receive the grace that God has given us, because we don't have to leave here the same as when we came. And, and, and lest you think that, you know, somehow or another I'm preaching to you and not to me, this is a message I need to hear. I want to honor Christ in the way I think as well as the way I act. And, and one of the things that amazes me, and I've been talking to my spiritual director about it, is the tremendous way, my capacity, I guess is the way to say it, to, for self-deception. That I can so easily see the sins in my husband or my children and so have such difficulty seeing them in my own. Let's really pray that God will show us ways in which we have lingered on those temptations, where we've allowed impurity uh, to be a part of, of our marital relationship, whatever that is, and, and, and ask the Spirit to give us an opportunity for repentance. Can you stand? And I just want to lead us in a brief prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, I thank you for your word that brings us humbly to a place of self-examination. 
it's so easy to look at our culture and be condemnatory, but oh God, you are more interested in making us holy than in making, using us to make other people holy. You've lavished your grace upon us according to Ephesians 1 so that we may be holy and blameless before you. You are holy, holy, holy. And we want to be like you. And there are ways we don't want to be like you. And I pray you'd convict our hearts for the ways in which we have said no to you and yes to self. Please help us, Jesus, to see any area of impurity, of mind, of affection, of intention, of dress, of conversation. Please help us to repent, O oh God. We love you. We want to love you better. And by your mercy that are renewed every morning, so great is your faithfulness. By your mercy, O oh God, we cast ourselves on you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. And Mary, you are the model of purity. Please pray for us. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And all glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.